Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 74 of Hack to Start. This episode features Liam Martin, the co-founder and CMO of Time Doctor and Staff.com. Tyler and I wanted to invite Liam onto the show to share his story as an entrepreneur. As a teenager, Liam was a competitive ice dancer, training 8 to 12 hours a day. Unfortunately, a knee injury forced him to look for a plan B and he pursued academia until he found out he didn't like teaching. Liam then began building a web-based tutoring business and gradually got more involved in tech companies. He's now the co-founder of Time Doctor and Staff.com. This is going to be an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey Liam, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Franco. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited to have you. I mean, you know, we've been we've been talking about doing this for a while, and uh, glad we finally have a chance to both connect in the same time zone to make this happen. Yeah, exactly. It's been I've seen you guys evolving, hack to start, and it's it's amazing that you're doing like this is episode seventy four. That's it that's is crazy. I know. Time um, yeah, it does fly, and I've just I've listened to about five or six episodes, so. It's a really interesting exchange. I think you've sort of developed a, an interesting niche and in just sort of understanding not just the businesses behind the people, but the people themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that's actually a really good transition. So let, let's, tell, let's tell some of our listeners a little bit more about you. So can you tell us a bit, you know, like where you're from, what you studied, um, and how your passion for entrepreneurship really started to develop? I'm from Canada. And uh, I went to school at uh, actually a couple different places. I started, as you probably know, as a um, competitive ice dancer. And I was uh, a pair skater for, um, I guess I started when I was like 12, 13 years old competitively. And then around 16, 17 years old, I started going to um, elite training facilities. So the government here up in Canada, they'll, they'll basically, they provide a lot of funding for athletics. I spent a year in Montreal, I spent a year in Vancouver, I spent a year in Calgary. Um, So I would zip around to those different cities and uh, school actually moved from going to a high school to um, going and basically taking like virtual school, I guess you could call it, uh, like you just take courses online. And that was interesting. I had to grow up pretty fast. Like basically I was on my own philosophically at like 16 years old, uh, which was cool, and then got into Ottawa U, which was, uh, you know, I I remember making my application there, and I just thought to myself, please let me in, because it's like, I, I just, I had actually broken my knee when I was skating, and I, you know, didn't get any more funding, and I just had to figure out a plan B, because my plan A was, oh, I was going to be uh, world's hopeful, you know, maybe possibly an Olympic hopeful in the future. And that just was not going to happen with my injuries. So then I thought to myself, okay, I've got to get that plan B and figure out uh, how to actually build some type of a career. Gone into school. And the funny thing was, is the discipline that I had gained from sports, because 
I would be starting, you know, I'd start skating at six o'clock in the morning and I'd probably do eight to 12 hours of training per day. So it was a very disciplined program. And when I went into school, I was so thankful that I got in that I was so disciplined that I was just doing aces across the board. Um, and that got me into grad school. And that was great. I went to McGill University for that and realized um, that through the middle of grad school that becoming a professor was not really what I wanted to do and uh, got into my first ever business, which was a, a, uh, a tutoring company. And I would tutor kids remotely. And that was a very exciting business. First real business ended up doing quite well. And then got into a couple other, you know, projects in between the way. And now I'm doing uh, staff.com and Time Doctor. How did you transition from sort of sports and academia into tech startups? Were there any like mentors that you sought out or, or how did that actually happen and fall into place for you? During, after I, I hurt myself, uh, broke my knee, I was pretty much out of that entire sports system. So there was no choice. And I remember I started applying to schools Uh, got into one. And then from that perspective, the mentorship there was just, if you're a disciplined student, not necessarily a smart one, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider myself a smart student, but I did consider myself a very disciplined student. I was able to work very hard um, at the job. And I think that primarily came from skating, as I had said before, you need to, you, you will find mentors in that environment they're there willing to work with you. I I think almost every good professor, I'd say probably about half the professors in universities are good. And what I define as good is they're willing to help you. And those were a lot of my mentors throughout academia um, up until the point in which I actually quit, not quit, but I mean, so I was going on the PhD route for uh, McGill University. And I remember um, teaching my first class at university. And that was actually... That was huge because, you know, you're not just a teaching assistant. You were, I was co-teaching a class and I was so excited. And I remember it was a first year sociology course um, on a Friday at 8.30. So no one wants to actually be there on a Friday at 8.30. That's one factor. The secondary factor is it was a first year sociology course. So a lot of people that were not in sociology that were, were taking it, and they were just thinking, oh, this is an easy A. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be able to roll in and pick up an A and roll out. Not the case. I actually was, you know, I, I had set everything up. I, I was putting together lectures. I was spending like eight or nine hours putting together a lecture that was an hour and a half. And it was, it was pretty intense. And by the end of the year, I think I had 300 students and two teaching assistants. And by the end of the year, we had about 150 students, which is bad. Uh, that's very, very bad. And you, you know, uh, there's a, one of the major parts of a professor is their student reviews. So they'll, they'll do student surveys, like how is this professor? You know, what was he, how was he like? Is he a good educator? Is he easy to talk to all this kind of stuff? I scored quite low on all of those factors. And I remember going back to my professor, you know, my, uh, my thesis advisor, and I kind of just walked in and I said, I don't think I'm very good at this. And he said, no, you're not. <laughs> and I said, uh, do you think that this is the right thing for me to do? And he says, well, you know what? I, I don't know. I think you've got to make some serious changes uh, to the way that you're teaching to be able to solve this problem. And I said, well, and we kind of just, 
came to the conclusion that uh, a master's was a much easier way for me to go. You know, he said, you can write up a master's and you can be done in four weeks. Write up 200 pages on anything in, in literally six and a half weeks. I wrote up, I think it was 200 pages on just absolute crap, threw it under his door, got myself, I think it was an A minus average and was out the door. And, th and then from that actually started my first business, which was um, I was getting paid $2,300 for that class, which worked out to, I think I had worked it out to about $2 and 20 cents an hour, um, with all of the extra work that I was putting into it. And you can't live on 2000 plus dollars, um, per semester. It just doesn't work. Uh, and not only that, you've got to, you can, you can only do two or three classes realistically. Uh, so it's a very cheap, you have to vi live very, very frugally to be able to survive as a uh, non-tenured instructor at a university. So I was actually making more money off of tutoring the students um, separately, which I probably was not supposed to do, but I was charging them, uh, I think it was like 50 bucks an hour to be able to tutor them. And I was making more money from the tutoring than I was from the uh, teaching. So realized that I wanted to kind of pursue that. And that was the very first business that I had done, which was a tutoring business. And then realized that the internet existed and that this thing called Skype, you could slap video onto Skype and you could do a screen share um, on Skype. And this is like revolutionary, right? Because now you can basically run a class from anywhere on the planet. So I started doing that remotely. Uh, I went from like one student to 10 students. I didn't have to go to their house or I didn't have to go to, their, to a coffee shop. I could just stay at home and do it. And then I said, oh, you know, maybe my, my friends would want to do this too because I'm getting a lot more requests. And I think within two years, we had about... 200 part-time graduate students that were tutoring students. It was a fantastic business. We actually focused on one single demographic, which if anyone is going to run an online tutoring company, I highly suggest this, which is pre-med courses. So there's like bio one, two, chem one, two, math one, two, and physics one, two. Those are the pre-med prerequisites to be able to get into medical school. They need A's or A pluses on every single one of those courses, or they can't get into top tier medical schools. So there's a whole bunch of people that want to make sure that they get A's or A pluses on all of those different courses. If they can't, um, their parents aren't happy, they aren't happy, and people are willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars to be able to get tutored in those particular prerequisites. So it's a huge business and we just kind of recognize that I could slap a $50 an hour tutor into, you know, into your computer screen anywhere in the world and you could get trained on those prerequisites. It was a huge business um, for us. So you're currently the co-founder and CMO of two startups, Time Doctor and Staff.com. For those who may not be familiar with these, with these startups, can you give us a quick overview of them and, and tell us what really motivated you to start them? Sure. So um, we, the first business that we built was timedoctor.com, and that is basically a time analytics tool, primarily geared towards remote teams. So we have at this point about 70 people in, we just got a guy in South Africa. So now we're, we're in 18 different countries. So we don't run a stereotypical different business. Like, you know, our office here, Franco, it's basically just me and like two or three other people in this local office. And I'm usually not, you know, I'm, I'm maybe there'll be one to two people in on a daily basis. So we have this philosophy of work wherever you want, whenever you want. And that was the first business that we had built. Um, the company is still very successful. It's continuing to grow fantastically well. And then we actually ended up 
in a situation where we got invited by people that wanted to acquire us. And this was probably about, about four years ago. Uh, so we hadn't even started to sell Time Doctor as a product at this point. Uh, like we were just, it was a free beta, which going back, this was before like Eric Reese and MVP as a concept even came out. If I had that at that point, man, the business would be a completely different space. But um, so we had built this, you know, we built this app and we were getting a lot of, um, a lot of interest from it. And we looked at some of the guys that, you know, wanted to buy us and we looked at what they were doing. And then we looked at what we were doing and we're like, you know what, I think it's really stupid what they're doing. And I think that we have a better way of, um, hiring people, which was exactly the way that we did it within our business. So me and my business partner, Rob, we have, 70 people, and um, some of the people have been with us for oh, 15, 20 years working remotely. You know, we were doing it like before remote was a thing. We were, <laughs> we were, doing, we, we were doing these types of remote working agreements um, for, a ver for a very long time. So we had kind of recognized that the short project-based stuff was really not what we wanted to do. We wanted to build a business online, not just do a couple projects online. So from that, we decided to build uh, staff.com, which is a two-sided marketplace for long-term remote employees. Um, the other thing that we did is, you know, it, it's not for projects. So if you want projects, there's great platforms. There's stuff like fiverr.com, upwork.com, which was Odesk and Elance, and freelancer.com. So they all do like projects. And we are, so if you want a website built, you go to them. If you want a web designer, go to staff.com. That's the place to be um, if you want those long-term working relationships. And what we do on top of that is we don't charge margin like everyone else. So we also think that that really doesn't work long-term for remote working relationships because eventually that employer wants to leave, or sorry, that employee basically doesn't want to give away 30% of their salary to the, you know, the the, the site and the platform, yeah. yeah. Site and the platform. So all that we do is we basically just charge you ten dollars per user per month, which is the cost of Time Doctor, to be able to do it. So fundamentally, like Staff.com is kind of like a growth hack for Time Doctor, in, in essence. And that was a very uh, th that was a great strategy for us to to sort of implement because it puts a it gives people a different place to put their remote employees and and manage their remote employees, and they know exactly how long they're going to be, uh, how much they're being charged, and they just know kind of what they're getting into long term. So it's a place where you can say, yeah, okay, I can work with this guy for a year, two years, 10 years, and that person is going to be, you know, uh, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of money to be able to work with that person. Yeah, absolutely. And, and staff.com is a, is a pretty sweet kind of domain name. Uh, how, how did you guys actually end up acquiring that, that domain name? What was the process like? Yeah, it was an interesting process. So originally, we had bought um, a different URL that was close to staff.com. And uh, I think we bought it for like a grand or something like that. And I actually disagreed with that. So initially, I was against purchasing um, staff.com. Um, my business partner, Rob, was like, oh, let's buy it right away. And I said, no, no, we've got to figure out what we're doing, whether or not this actually is going to work as a business model. And so we bought the not as known uh, URL and we started building the business there. And um, the way that we analyzed whether or not staff.com would work or not is once we had kind of understood, okay, yeah, there seems to be something there. I think we were making, you know, 
twenty, thirty thousand dollars a month at that point in the first couple months, um, we recognized, okay, there's something here. So now what we should do is we should really figure out which URL we want to go with. So we grabbed like the top 10 URLs that we wanted and we forgot about price point. Well, we just grabbed the top 10 URLs and we went to Mechanical Turk. Um, Mechanical Turk, for anyone that doesn't know, is uh, basically a task crowdsourcing site. So let's say it's run by Amazon. Amazon's problem was let's say you need to add a description of an image to 10 million images like Amazon does all the time. Uh, how do you actually implement something like that? Well, you don't want to hire a whole bunch of people to just change those or to describe those images because that's actually really costly when you look at the economics of it. Instead, why don't we just say, okay, I'm going to pay you a quarter to describe every single image um, on Amazon. So I'm gonna, you're going to give me a quarter for every time that that happens. And that basically was Mechanical Turk. They built it internally for themselves, and now they have it as an open, open platform service. So we went to that, and uh, we paid people, I think, you know, a dime to just, the, the task was, look at these 10 URLs on one page, and we randomly up, you know, applied those different URLs on that first page, and then click the next button, and then... Um, it was just a simple question, what do you remember? Hmm. And you have to type out what URLs you remember. And staff.com had like, I think a 5X exponential, wow. um, you know, resurgence rate in comparison to all the other URLs. And we included URLs like staff.co, staff.io, you know, uh, staff.net, staff.org, all of these different extensions. For anyone who's really like, I see a lot of tech startups now that are using .io, .co, um, all these different URLs. To be honest with you, it's still, if you're not building, if you're building an actual website, not a mobile app, you need your, the, the .com still today. It's, it's a requirement. Um, there's very, you know, people are not in the mindset of typing in, uh, you know, staff.io. It just, they'll type it in, and then a week later, when they're like, oh, you know, I want to check out staff again, they'll type in staff.com. It happens, and there's so many other experiments that will show that. So for people that are thinking, oh, okay, I'm going to do a .io or .co extension, don't do it. Choose a URL that's less well-known and just get a .com. It's, it's so much more important. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great tip. So you mentioned it uh, a bit earlier there that outsourcing had started to become kind of popular, um, you know, especially in these most recent years, but even before when you guys were starting to get, you know, staff.com up and running. Mm -hmm. What are some of the, you know, maybe a few pieces of advice that you'd have to share with other entrepreneurs or, you know, SMBs who are considering outsourcing for the first time? Uh, well, I'd say probably the most important thing if you're outsourcing for the very first time is you need to understand that managing a remote employee is very different from managing a local one. That's probably our top problem for, for why people fail doing long-term remote work. To get your head around that, um, when you have somebody in the office, I can just say, hey, Franco, this is how you do something properly. You, you were doing it this way, but I, I need to be able to show you exactly how to change that right now. When Franco is 10,000 miles away, you can't do that. That yeah. doesn't happen. So what you need to do is you need to write up a whole bunch of documents on the operational procedures of your business. So how to write a blog post properly, how to do, you know, how to sign a signature appropriately, um, a whole bunch of other 
things. We have thousands of different processes within the business and you need to write them all down. You need to digitize them and you need to systematize them. And then you need to be able to communicate that information to that remote employee. So we, you, you can use something like Google Docs. If you're just starting, that's super easy uh, to, to implement. We have our own wiki and that's great. Um, there's a bunch of other applications that you can use. Uh, even as an example, guides.co, you could use that as, an, uh, you know, as a way to be able to systematize different tasks and processes across an organization. It doesn't really matter what you're using. You just need to be able to document that information and communicate it to that employee. If you do not do that, I would not even get started. So like, I, I have plenty of people that come in and say, okay, we've never done outsourcing before. We need to hire 20 people. You're going to fail. I just, it's going <laughs> you're going to probably about 15 of those 20 people will not be with you in a year. What you need to do instead is you need to start with a single person. Even if you're, even if you've got 10,000 employees in your company, start with a single person and then start building the operational procedures connected to figuring out how to get that person, um, understanding what's in your head without you being in the same physical room as them. And that's an interesting management dilemma that people don't really understand when they start doing outsourcing and remote work, which becomes evidently clear within the first weeks and months uh, working with a remote employee. Yeah, absolutely. You know, earlier you mentioned when you were talking about kind of the staff.com origin story that, you know, you guys within a couple months were, were already generating revenue. How did you guys, you know, approach, you know, getting your first customers to begin with right off the bat? I called about 500 people friends, business, <laughs> old, you know, old customers. Um, I just basically beg, I mean, I would, I wish I could give you like a smart growth hack, you know, to some way of doing it. And yeah. to be honest with you, it was just, I called a whole bunch of people and tried to convince them to buy something from me. Oh, that, that's, I mean, that's awesome. Well, I think a lot of people are sort of hesitant to pick up the phone. So I wanted to know if it was, you know, like ads or Facebook or social or, or what was going on. I would say like, Facebook and Google and, you know, all these other methods. And there's a bunch of, you know, there's so many different methods to acquire customers right now. They're all important. But if you cannot convince people that know you to buy your product from you, how do you think that complete strangers are going to do it? You know, th that to me is, <laughs> I'm constantly surprised at people that are just like, oh, you know, we've got this product, but, uh, I don't really want to sell it to you. I don't want, I don't want to hard sell it to you or something like this. Uh, to be honest with you, it is, it's difficult to be able to, if your friends are not willing to buy it and give you honest feedback on it, you know, people that don't even know you are probably not going to, you know, want to buy it from you in the first place. And it's either, it actually boils down to either two things. Either they don't want to pressure their friends into buying the product, which is fine. Um, I have a personal philosophy, which is, the secret to life is basically having difficult conversations, is being comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. That's the secret to life. So if you can ask your friends, hey, I want you to, here's this new company, I want you to buy something in it, uh, you should be able to do that. Or secondarily, you don't actually think your product is that good. And if you don't think it's good, then, or good enough that your friends can use it, or that you think that they would gain value from it, then you need to go back to the drawing board and build a better product. So that for me is a big thing um, that a lot of these guys don't really get. I get pitched constantly by people, uh, you know, about their new product and they either won't let me play with it or they won't let me buy it. And I actually, 
now, particularly, you know, if I'm doing a talk or something like that, I'll say, oh, okay, who's, you know, who's got a new tech startup or new tech idea? And usually you'll probably have about five or six people that'll put up their hands. And then I'll say, great, I want to buy them from you. And uh, I'll play with them for a month. And then if I actually don't like them, I'll ask for a refund. And I usually actually ask for a refund about 25% of the time um, because it wasn't for me. But like you should get people buying your product and then you should get them to be angry at you. Um, because maybe it's not the right, you know, it's maybe not the right product for them. That's so important. And just people kind of completely bypass it because they have an innate fear of having uncomfortable conversations and you shouldn't be fearful of those. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a great, uh, great piece of advice. So both your startups, time doctor and staff.com have been bootstrapped. So what's that process been like for, for you and Rob? Uh, it's been different actually. So me and Rob come from two different places. Um, we had both had acquisitions uh, before getting into this, so it's a little disingenuous to be able to say we're bootstrapped. Um, I would probably say a better definition is we're self-funded. So, uh, like as an example, buying staff.com as a URL is not cheap. You've got to spend a significant amount of money to actually um, acquire a URL like that. And, and ironically enough, actually, we probably started Time Doctor on... I would say to bridges to operational profitability cost us about three hundred thousand. Uh, so to go from product on day one, where okay, yeah, we're going to assemble two or three developers to try to figure out this solution, to um, hey, we're generating. Um, I think we crossed operational profitability at about thirty thousand dollars a month. Um, that process, you know, that process took us a, took us a while. I think it took us. Probably, I think it was like nine months or something like that. It, it's disingenuous to say I'm bootstrap. Basically, is the is the sort of end thesis on that one. Um, now, with that said, you can you can do things with funding that you just can't do without funding, and you know you can just go big. So you can go from zero to um, ten million ARR in you know three years instead of six years, as an example. I, I'm sure that if I had raised five to $10 million at the beginning, we'd probably be two to three X where we are right now. However, we might be doing that in the red. So that's my disadvantage of getting um, funding is you're going to get a whole bunch of money, but then you have to spend your money and almost constantly be in the red because that's just the way that the funding game works. And secondarily, on top of that, um, you're never going to be in kind of a safe place because you're always answerable to the next round of financing to be able to get to that point. So that's kind of my fear um, connected to boots, uh, connected to, to getting funding. I actually prefer bootstrapping, even though we go slower, um, we are making a uh, we're we're doing well. Um, I would definitely not consider it a lifestyle business. I think a lot of other fears of people say, "Oh, well, you didn't get funding or you didn't get funded, so you know it's a lifestyle business that I don't know makes you know a couple million bucks a year or something like that, and that's it." Um, that's that's not what we're doing. I think that actually not getting funding means you just are about for every round of financing. I think you're probably moving yourself forward by about two years. That, that's that's how I would kind of calculate it. So if you're thinking about right now saying, oh, there's a couple of VCs that are sending us term sheets and we got term sheets too. We, you know, we didn't, we, we didn't say yes at that point because of, you know, the various concerns that I'm discussing right now. But if you got a series A, I think it's going to move you forward two years. The question would be, do you want to wait another two years and keep all of your company? Or do you want to take this money now and move forward two years? And it just boils down to an individual use case. 
What are some of the most important metrics, you know, to you that or that you measure for timedoctorandstuff.com? Uh, so for me, the most important metric that we measure is uh, time tracked per day. So uh, how much time are people spending tracking time on our platform? That's the most important metric. That's the biggest metric that we track is engagement. We actually have, it's called our compass metric. So um, everything builds from that. So if we're seeing a drop in hours tracked, we will see a drop in hours tracked before we see a drop in revenue. We'll see a, you know, we'll see a drop in, if we see a boost in hours tracked, we'll see an increase in revenue in about 30 days after our trial is over. So that's the most important metric. Then it's daily active users. Um, That's big too, but kind of connects to, as I said, how much, you know, how much time are you actually spending tracking on the platform? And then there's revenue and there's, you know, can we increase our lifetime value, all these other types of things. But fundamentally, it all boils down to how much time are people tracking on the system? Um, if that stops going up, we're in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for, for both Time Doctor and Staff.com? What do you guys have planned? I'm just going to keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> uh, there's not much. I, actually, it's big on staying focused, not being distracted. So as an example, expanding from Time Doctor to Staff.com was a big diversion of focus. We're happy that we did it, but it is, it's a completely new company that you have to staff. You have to make sure that those people are happy. You have to deal with their concerns versus your other team's concerns. And there's a lot of different factors that come into it. So, um, for us, we're really just focused on scaling those two businesses and making sure that they're successful. I have a big box of, um, entrepreneurial ideas and I keep them in a shoebox. And uh, so uh, I'm sure that there's a lot of listeners on your podcast right now that have this same problem that I have, which is I always have these great ideas. I was actually out to, uh, I was out with Aiden a couple days ago, who's a, a mutual friend of ours. And he's, he ran a company called Fluid Wear that sold to SurveyMonkey uh, about a year and a half ago. And he's just got, you know, he's got ideas and I always have ideas. And the problem that I have is if I actually take action on them, then I distract myself from the main business. So what I do to get rid of those ideas, I write them down and I put them in a shoebox and I close the shoebox and I've never opened it. And that's an easy way to just sort of like solve all of those problems. And then eventually if we sell Time Doctor or Staff.com or you know something else happens, I can open up the shoebox again and kind of look in there and figure out some new ideas of what I want to do next. It's like an entrepreneurial time capsule. <laughs> yeah, Sounds- I, bet you, I bet you there's probably a lot of really stupid ideas in there, but you need to get them out of you <laughs> and on to either get someone else to do them, you know, give them to somebody else or, um, or just get them out of your head. Because for me, focus is, I'm a big, I get distracted quite a bit and I need to be able to stay focused. Cool. So I know you've got tons of funny stories, funny and interesting stories. Is there one that, that you know that you don't share very often that would be suitable to share with us? Um, probably not suitable to share with you, but I can talk about it if <laughs> sure. you want. I was at uh, at South by Southwest. I think I was speaking at some panel, and I was out with a couple of buddies of mine, and we run something called the tour every year at South by Southwest. For people that have never been there, it's a big tech conference. It's kind of like spring break for nerds. I think there's half a million people that end up showing up there. And you check out panels, you check out keynotes, and it's a real lot of fun. A whole bunch of tech people there are go there. And there's a lot of huge parties. 
that happen there. So what we do is we run something called the tour, which is kind of like the anti-party, which is we just get a whole bunch of our friends. Usually, I think max, we can do 40. Um, that, actually, that year was nuts. We usually do about 20 to 30. And we, um, we get a tour by this guy, Chris, who's a friend of mine that's lived in Austin, Texas his entire life. And he has this magical bar tour that he does. He actually does it for a whole bunch of really high-end hotels, too, when people want to have, like, a real Austin experience. So we go out and we do this tour. Um, there's 10 bars. There's, like, mechanical bulls. There's fireballs. There's um, mud wrestling. There's, uh, uh, I think there's guns at one point. There's a whole bunch of different things that you got to do. Um, definitely not something for the faint of heart. So we go through this entire process. And we all wake up the next morning. And one, I remember there was a particular venture capital firm, a very large venture capital firm that was chatting with us about funding. And we had a, um, I think there were five partners and I had had a talk with four of them and they were all very positive about the business. So I was trying to meet the fifth partner who was going to be in Austin at that time. And I had sent him an email about four or five days earlier, and um, he had responded saying, uh, yeah, let's definitely connect. And I gave him my phone number. And so he had texted me uh, that night and said, hey, you know, I'd love to be able to connect. And for some reason, I think it was one of my friends. I'm pretty sure it was not me because I do not remember it. Um, I responded, who the F is this? I'm really, really drunk. That was it. He doesn't respond to that text message, obviously. And then the next day, I go onto my email and I see that, you know, my CRM has popped up that I still haven't gotten back to this guy. So I send him one more email saying, hey, you know, I would really like to meet before the, you know, before you leave Austin. Uh, love to be able to chat. So he responds back to me almost immediately through email, says, yeah, sure. Meet me at 2 p.m. at this hotel. So I say, great. I go and I meet him at 2 p.m. at this hotel. And this guy is like Captain America. He's got, you know, he's, he's like six feet tall. He was an Olympian. Really, really cool guy. Really smart guy. Comes up to me and says, hey, it's Liam, right? And I say, yeah, it's Liam. And then we shake hands. He gets his phone out and he says, uh, he says, you want to see what you texted me last night? And I say, sure. And then he just shows me the phone. And I literally, my stomach did a backflip. I was just absolutely, um, if I could dig a hole and jump into it at that particular <laughs> moment, I would have done that. And it's absolutely, you know, he's silent. So he's not, he's not telling me whether or not this is good or bad. I mean, obviously it's bad, but I'm thinking this guy just, he's going to show me this text message. He's going to say, yeah, and uh, go F yourself as well. And I'm going to, you know, tell the other partners that you're a bad investment. <laughs> so I'm doing that backflip and he's just completely silent. And then all of a sudden he just sort of like gives me a slap on the side of the shoulder and he says, you must be having a lot of fun in Austin. <laughs> and I say, yeah, of course I'm having a lot of fun in Austin. And that proceeded to be one of the most interesting and stress-free VC meetings I have ever done in my entire life because my introduction is so bad that I had, I did not care what happened after that point. So I chatted about, it was mostly just me talking about Austin, Texas and doing the tour and all this kind of stuff. And so that actually started getting around and I went to dinner later that night and the VC world is quite small. 
And I was, I was going to dinner with a couple other entrepreneurs and then I start telling the story and they're like, Oh, you're the, you're you're the, (laughs) you're the, you're the go, you know, go F yourself guy or something like that, or the I'm effing drunk guy. And I was like, Oh crap. Cause you know, the VC world is small. There's probably good firms. I'd say probably max 2000 partners across the planet. Um, so they can all talk to each other and they all take notes on each other. So that was interesting. And, um, we're still on a really good relationship with that VC firm. They're, you know, they're definitely considered some of them friends. So we didn't damage anything, per, you know, permanently. It was just an interesting experience that uh, when I was beginning this entire tech startup process and also looking at different VCs, I just thought I had totally destroyed it, but realized that I didn't. That's cool. That's hilarious. So um, what are some of the most uh, recent apps that uh, you've downloaded or used in, in, the, in the past little bit here? I would say I've been using ChartMogul a lot. ChartMogul.com. What it allows you to do is we were, before that point, we were really processing a lot of our data manually. And what I mean, what, what ChartMogul does is it allows you to figure out the profitability of a customer, um, how much money you're making, where that money, you know, whether a customer is, is, has quit, uh, whether they've dropped seats in an account, a whole bunch of different factors. So basically it's gathering like MRR, LTV, a bunch of other metrics, and you can rearrange these metrics however you'd like. So ChartMogul has been fantastic because the big advantage for us, I think they're probably one of the most expensive, but they're very customizable. And they integrated not just with Stripe, but they integrate with Braintree, Chargeify. Uh, they'll even allow you to import a CSV. So it was a much better tool for us because we actually have m- multiple merchant accounts. And we were able to integrate all those merchant accounts together. And it's given us some really interesting insights on our data that we wouldn't have otherwise had. So ChartMogul for me has been really, really big. Um, in terms of other ad, one other app actually that I grabbed was mixmax.com and um, this app is pretty much an app to allow you to create email trees inside of Gmail. So um, let's say I want to email somebody and I, and I need to I know that I'm gonna have to email them in seven days if they don't email me back. So like you know I just did a demo with somebody I'll send them an email saying, hey, great to talk to you about the demo. I'd love to be able to figure out when we can get you on a trial. And if they haven't responded to me in seven days, then Mixmax, Mixmax automatically sends me enough, that follow-up email in the sequence so I can set up a sequence for them. And if they have responded to me, then they're pushed out of that sequence. So that's been really cool for me. And it's been a fantastic way for me to just sort of like quasi-manage my different emails um, so that I'm not really, I don't have to remember which customer I spoke to and when they stopped talking to me and all those types of things. Mixmax kind of does it for me. Cool. That's awesome. Do you have any other recommendations on like great content that you might've come across lately? You know, books, videos, blog posts, Netflix shows. I have been watching Narcos and that's been pretty awesome. Um, but two books that I would suggest, I just recently came off of a large sales campaign, uh, for enterprise sales. And I don't know before six months ago, I I knew nothing about enterprise sales. Now I know a little bit. Um, to the point in which I can actually hire probably salespeople or a VP of sales and really understand what's going on and what I should be looking for. So the two books that I read to, um, to figure that out was 
predictable revenue, and then the other one is spin selling. So predictable revenue to me lays out the groundwork of what you need to do to be able to do enterprise sales. So like the biggest lesson that I got from that was the people who do lead generation and the people who set up a meeting and the people who actually demo the product and close the customer should be three different divisions within your company. And before that point where we're having one person do everything, and that's actually a really bad use of their time. Because if you're, if you're hiring a closer, that maybe that closer is you know, worth $200,000, $300,000 a year, they shouldn't be doing lead generation. They shouldn't be setting up a meeting. All they should be doing is going into meetings and closing deals. So we, we completely restructured the way we were doing it, uh, and we got fantastic results from that. The second book is called Spin Selling. And spin selling helps you understand how, like, basically, uh, predictable revenue gets you to the point of the demo, and then spin selling kind of picks off where picks up from where the from where predictable revenue drops off, and it says, okay, let's try to bring you through the demo process and really understand what your customer is looking for. So don't just show the pro- show the product to a customer and say, okay, here's the product you want to buy it. You start to ask the customer. What do you need? Uh, or, you know, ah, well, I need, I need to hire another 10,000 people within the next six months. Okay, so what are the problems associated with that? Oh, well, you know, we really can't, uh, we're going to have to build this huge new office to be able to accommodate them all. Oh, well, if they could work remotely and not in an office, and we could guarantee that they are as productive as they are in an office environment, do you think that would help solve that problem? Oh, wow, yeah, that would totally solve that problem. And then you can bring in your solution as opposed to just demoing them the product and not connecting the dots. So spin selling really kind of gets into the mindset of, um, of enterprise sales and trying to close that client. And the thing that I like about spin selling much with predictable revenue and pretty much everything else that we do in the business is it's all quantifiable. So all of their talks, all of their case studies give you quantifiable data and they'll say, Hey, we tried this and this, and this worked, you know, 17% better than the other thing. And we did it with an N of 500 employees, as an example, or 500 pitches. So that's what I really like about those two books is they're all connected to quantifiable data, which is really useful, particularly for a tech startup, because with enterprise sales, um, I find that there are a lot of people that are just really good at selling. And you can't control for people that are really good at selling, i.e., how can I hire 10,000 people that are really good at selling? You can't. It will average out. So then all you have to do is basically figure out how can I turn bad salespeople into hopefully statistically better salespeople? Yeah. Uh, so that's what we work on. That's cool. I'll have to check out Spin Selling. I'm obviously a big fan of Predictable Revenue. I like that book a lot. Yeah. Exactly. So do you have any last thoughts or personal models that you like to live by and you think others should know about? I'm going to bring back my other one. Uh, the one that I, I mentioned before, which is the secret to life is being comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. Not just in com- not just in business, but in life. You've got a problem with your your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your husband or your wife. Address it. Discuss it. Um, the actual the pain that you're going through to even not discuss it is creating pain on a daily basis. So think about where you're at in your life and think about the little things that bother you on a daily basis and then figure out, can I actually solve this problem? And if you can, then address it. 
and it's going to be incredibly painful. Uh, it's going to be very uncomfortable. But once you finish that conversation, you'll actually be in a much happier place. So I think about that all the time. Whenever there's something bugging me, I try to figure out, number one, can I control what's bugging me? If I can, by having a conversation with somebody, uh, making a decision, um, running a new business, shutting down a business, whatever it might be, I address it immediately. And that almost always solves my stress. And I'm a pretty stress-free guy, as you know, Franco. So um, that's my key is being comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. That's awesome. No, it's a great piece of advice. I really liked it earlier and I'm glad you brought it back. I think it makes sense to to repeat it and, and to think about it, internalize it and, and try to use it. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, Liam, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, to chat with me today. I really appreciate it, man. No worries. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.